I don't know if any of you have ever had this experience. My guess is, though, if we went around the room and I asked you to raise your hand, there'd be quite a, quite a few number of hands. Don't, don't, don't raise your hand, but have you ever had one of those experiences where you knew you had an opportunity to, to show or display the love of Jesus to another person and you either just completely missed it or you just botched it? You knew that there was this kind of open window for you to share the gospel or to show the love of Jesus or to show someone kindness or mercy or compassion in the name of Christ, and you just completely missed it. You know, I've had so many of those in my life. I think my wife and I were talking this weekend about this, and she reminded me of one of the most recent opportunities that we just missed, and it was a major one. You know, we moved into the house that we're in right now about three years ago, and we moved into this house. Uh, we learned pretty quickly that there was a woman kind of at the end of our street, just a couple doors down across the street, who had been a widow for about 19 or 20 years. And when we moved in, she was kind of a shut-in as well. So she was a widow, and she was pretty much confined to her bed. Every now and then we'd see someone come and pick her up and leave. But for the most part, she stayed in her house the whole time. And her son lived there with her and was her primary caregiver. And I remember when we found out about this, my wife and I both, we would say to one another, hey, at some point we should go down and meet her. We should go down and show her the kindness of Jesus. We should go down there and be good neighbors and love on her some. And we kept having this kind of conversation. And then her son, we've gotten to know him pretty well because he's always out and about. He'll come out and say, hey, he go, man, mama loves to sit in her bed and look out the window and see your kids riding their bikes up and down the street. It brings a smile to her face. And we'd say, oh, that's awesome. You know, we really need to get over there and talk to her. And then a year and a half ago, when my daughter was born, my daughter Dahlia, he came by and he said, I, I told mama that you guys had a little girl and she's really excited. And Amy and I looked at each other after he left. We said, man, we really need to take Dahlia down there and show her to this woman. And we kept having these conversations of what we should do, what we think we're supposed to do, and yet we never did it. And then back in March, I'll never forget, uh, her son came to our house and he let me know that that she had passed away in the night and that he had lost his mom. And, you know, we, we got to be a part of the funeral process there with them. We got to grieve with him and mourn with him. But as soon as we found out that she had passed away, Amy and I both were just deeply convicted. We we're like, why in the world did we miss this? I'm a pastor. Like, I'm supposed to be a missionary. I talk about this all the time. And here's this beautiful, most obvious open door moment to show the kindness of Jesus to someone else. And we just completely miss it. Have you ever been there before? You miss an opportunity. You know, we're in this series right now called Belonging and Becoming, and we're learning what it means for us to be the family of God together. And we've talked about what that means for the way that we relate to God, that we understand that God is our Father. He's not this distant, angry being in the clouds, but he, he chooses to call himself our Father, and he adopts us into his family, and that's how we relate to him as father and child. And then we looked at what that means for how we relate to one another that we relate to one another as family, as brothers and sisters, siblings in the same family. And Dave got up here last week and talked about how that's so much more than just coming together on a Sunday. But it's really about us knowing one another, being known and knowing one another, loving one another and doing life together as the family of God. And then this week, we're gonna talk about what this idea of us as family, what that means for the way that we interact with the world around us how we interact with the people in the world who don't know the love of Jesus. And for some of you, that's you that are, you're here tonight. Like, you don't know the love of Jesus. And what I hope you'll experience is that we are trying to figure out what it means for us to live as a family, to not just talk about Jesus, to not just people that gather on a Sunday and worship and sing songs about Jesus, but to really be a family that tries to manifest the love of Jesus in everything we do. But here's the thing. 
You know, as I prepped for this sermon this week, you know, this is a sermon about us being on mission. It's a sermon about us being representatives of Jesus. And almost every time you hear a sermon like this, there's this temptation to immediately remember all the times, the opportunities that we've missed. To immediately think of the times that we feel like we've let God down because we haven't represented him well, we haven't seized the moment like we're supposed to. And if we're not careful, sermons about mission, sermons about being representatives of Jesus can begin to feel like these persuasive, motivational speeches meant to remind us of what we should be doing, all the while they're only reminding us of the things that we've messed up or haven't done. Have you ever felt that before in the middle of a sermon? Like, oh, I gotta be better about this. Gotta be better about this. And see, when we feel this way, I think there's really only two responses. When sermons on mission make us feel like we're missing the mark on what we should be doing, the two responses are this. One is that we begin to strive. So we walk out of here on a Sunday and we go, okay, I've gotta be a better representative of Jesus. I've gotta try harder. And so we strive to create these missionary moments. We strive to create opportunities out of our own might, out of our own efforts. And if you've ever done that, then you know it's just a frustrating endeavor because you walk out of here and you realize, I can't make this happen. I can't make opportunities to represent Jesus come my way. I can't force my way into people's lives. And so it's a frustrating experience. The other option, if we don't strive, the other option is that we just go, you know, I can't do it, so we hide from it. You know, there's something deep within us when we follow Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit. And I think the Holy Spirit convicts us. We all know, we all know as followers of Jesus that we are supposed to represent the love of Jesus to the world. And yet sometimes the weight of that feels like too much. And so we just hide from that aspect of being a follower of Jesus. It's too uncomfortable. It's too hard to try to talk about my faith in a place where nobody shares that faith. And I think all these fears get stirred up in us and we start to think, you know, I, I don't really know enough about the Bible that if I start to openly talk about my walk with Jesus and who I am around people, they're gonna ask me questions and I don't have answers, I don't know the Bible well enough. Or we go, you know, I mean, I'm struggling to figure out this Christianity thing on my own, much less help somebody else walk in it. Or, man, but what if they reject me? What if this costs me friendships, costs me family connections? And so we start to experience all these fears and so we just hide from that part of what it means to walk with Jesus. You see, I think there is a third way. There's a third way to respond to talk of mission and being a representative of Christ's love. It's neither striving nor hiding, but it is the way of Jesus. And that's what we're gonna look at in Matthew chapter five tonight. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter five, we're gonna start in verse 13. To give you a little setup, this is one of Jesus's most commonly uh, quoted sermons. It's one of the most powerful sermons. He's gathered on a hillside outside of a village in Galilee in the first century, and there's people surrounding him. And these are the words that he says, starting in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord, the words of Jesus out of Matthew chapter five. And I, I wanna tell you what I love about how Jesus talks here, just right off the bat. 
The first two words we see Jesus saying is he looks at these crowds and he says, you are. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You notice Jesus doesn't say to them, hey, you know, you really should be trying harder to be the salt of the earth, people. Come on, you really should be the light of the world. What's wrong with you? No, Jesus doesn't manipulate them. Instead, he speaks words of identity over them. He says, hey, because you're following me, because you will have the Holy Spirit inside you, this is a true statement about your identity. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth, and you may not feel that way. You may not, may not always feel like you have something to offer the world out there, but Jesus looks at his followers. He says, this is who you are. It's a statement of identity. It's the same sort of thing that we saw when we were walking through the book of Ephesians. So we spent a lot of time in that book earlier this year. At the very beginning of the book of Ephesians, the apostle Paul, he's writing to these Christians and he just speaks words of identity over them. He says, listen, you have been adopted into God's family. You are his children. He says, you have been seated on high with Christ in the heavenly realms. This is your identity. You may not always feel it. You may not always sense it. But this is the truth about who you are. And this is what Jesus says. I think if Jesus stood up here in front of us as a church, he would say these same words. He would say, ethos, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It's not manipulative, but just simply him speaking the truth of our identity over us. And one of the great things about the way that Jesus teaches is that he always uses these beautiful metaphors that just have layers of meaning. And here he uses two primary metaphors to anchor his followers in their identity. In the first one, he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are salt. Now for us, when we think of salt, most of us immediately think of these little shakers on the table that we sprinkle something over our food to add a flavor. But for the folks of Jesus' time, this was not the primary purpose of salt, not the primary way they would have used it. No, salt for those in Jesus' time was used as a preservative. You see, they didn't have freezers or refrigerators. They didn't have ice makers. If, if they killed an animal to feed their family, they couldn't pack the meat they didn't eat on ice or put it in a deep freezer. No, they had to preserve it another way. And salt was the way that they did this. And I was thinking about this this week when you know, Jesus is so intentional with the metaphors that he uses. Some of the, many of the people that were in that crowd, some of his closest followers were fishermen. And you think about the way that these fishermen fish. They use these huge nets and they would bring in these huge hauls of fish that would have to be sold in the marketplaces. And it just hit me this week, I'd never thought about this, but how in the world do those guys sell that many fish before they go rotten and get nasty? Well, they didn't. They had to preserve them. So Jesus is speaking their language. He's immediately, they're going, oh yeah, salt. That's, that's that thing that I use when I catch a fish. I clean it and I take the flesh out and I get handfuls of salt and I cure it into that meat so that the meat can be preserved so that it won't go rotten. You see, one of the things that salt does as a preservative is it, it fights against the things that call rot, cause rot and decay. My wife was talking to me about this. She helped me understand a little bit about how salt works to preserve. You know, we... We live in East Nashville and my li wife likes to ferment things. And so, you know, she ferments everything from cabbage to cucumbers. I mean, if it can be fermented or pickled, she's done it before. And so she starts talking with me uh, this weekend about how that actually works. She says, this is really beautiful, Aaron. You got to understand this. She said, the way that salt preserves is that it, it prevents the harmful bacteria that grow in living organic material that cause rot 
and decay and stench and mold. And she said, not only does it prevent that kind of bacteria, but it actually promotes healthy bacteria that is actually really good for your body to ingest. It promotes good digestion. This is a plug for eating some fermented food. Go get some kimchi after this. If you haven't had any, it's really good for you. So you see, the salt, it prevents the growth of harmful bacteria, but it promotes the growth of life-giving and nutritious and healthy bacteria. And so Jesus is talking to people that for them, salt was the only method of preservation that they had. And he says, this is who you are in the world. You are the salt of the earth, preventing the growth of all the things that cause rot and decay and promoting the growth of all the things that bring light and hope and life into people's lives. Such a beautiful metaphor. You see, the thing about salt, we gotta understand the way that it works. In order for salt to truly preserve, it needs two things. It needs to be pure and it needs to be together. It needs to be pure and it needs to be together. Let's start with with pure. Why does salt need to be pure? You see, if salt gets diluted, if it gets watered down or if it gets cut with something else that's not salt, it's just not as effective as a preserving agent. No, but it needs to be pure salt. And I think this is so important for us to understand when we talk about walking with Jesus, if we want to be who he has called us to be, who he says we are, then how we live really matters. How we live in the world really matters. This is why in the book of Romans, in chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, hey, don't be conformed anymore to the patterns of this world. You're called to be something different. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, it's how we love one another, how we lay down our lives for each other, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we steward the things that God has given us. These things really matter. Because we are called to be a preserving agent to fight against all the kinds of injustices and pain that we, that we see in the world. And so salt has to be pure. And I love this because what it means is that our first response to an awakened sense of mission is not shame that we're not doing enough, no. It's also not this call to try harder, no. You see, the first response to an awakened sense of mission is to long for Jesus to continue transforming us from the inside out so that we can look more like him. You know, the world doesn't need know-it-alls. The world needs a picture of Jesus. And the clearest picture of Jesus that the world gets is when Jesus' people begin to love one another and love the world around them with the sacrificial love of Jesus. So you see how we live, it really matters. But salt not only has to be pure, it also has to be together. And here's what I mean by this. If you think about if I took a a piece of fresh fish and cleaned it and got the meat off and then just put a single grain of salt on there, I hate to tell you, it's not gonna be preserved. Like that's still gonna rot. In order for salt to be effective, it's gotta be together with other salt, right? It's gotta be put on that flesh so that it can be preserved all together. You see, mission is not this solo endeavor. It's something that we do together. If we are going to be preserving agents in the world, Ethos Church, this is not something we approach alone or something that we have to do all by ourselves. And this is so important for us to understand here because what Jesus says next is often so confusing for us when we don't understand that what he's speaking to is the collective whole and not the individuals. Look what he says. He says, you're the salt of the earth, but... But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out. 
You see, sometimes I think we come to this text and our society, our culture has trained us to look at everything through an individualistic lens. Everything is just about me and my walk with Jesus. And man, if you read this text in that way, it's a pretty scary thing. So many people come to this and they go, oh my goodness, I better get out there and start representing Jesus and being salt of the earth or I'm, man, I, I, my salvation is on the line. Jesus is telling me that if I don't do this, I'm no good and he's just gonna throw me out. And we start fearing this fear that if we don't do it, then somehow our salvation is on the line that we're suddenly condemned because we're not living as salt of the earth. But see, Jesus is not speaking to individuals. He's not talking about salvation here. He's talking about purpose. He's looking at the collective whole and he says, hey, don't you understand that you have a purpose? You're the salt of the earth. You get to preserve and fight against the things that are bringing rot into this world. But it only works when you're together and if you lose that purpose, you lose the essence of what it means for you to be you. You see, we are not just a family that gets to have a father, but we have a father and our father has a job. He is a king and he's advancing his kingdom of justice and mercy and he invites us to be a part of that. And we, when we forget that purpose, well, then we might as well just be a country club that gets together on Sunday mornings to sing a few good songs and have our hearts tingled by a good sermon. No, we have a purpose. We have a purpose. We are called to be the salt of the earth, to be preserving agents in a world that so desperately needs that. And you know, this is such good news because I know there are some of you that you find yourselves on a regular basis on your own in groups of friends or family or coworkers where you're the only one that's trying to follow Jesus. And it's hard enough on your own to keep your own faith, much less have an influence on that group of people. And you say, man, I really want them to know the love of Jesus, but it's so hard by myself. This was never intended to be something that you do on your own. This is why Jesus sent the disciples out in pairs. Like he always sent them out to talk about the kingdom in groups of two because we don't do this alone. So here's the thing, if you find yourself alone in a group of friends, the solution is not just try to get those friends to come to church, although that would be very good. The solution is to come into this place, your family, and say, hey, I need some of my family to come with me to my friends. Because what they need to see is a picture of the love of Jesus being lived out by people who are living as brothers and sisters in Christ and sharing that love with one another and bringing them in on it. This is something we get to do together, family. We get to do this together. We are the salt of the earth. And Jesus moves on to this other metaphor. He says, you are the light of the world. He starts to unpack this metaphor for them, you know, in pl very plain terms. He says, you're the light of the world. Now here's what we know about light. A city that is on a hill cannot be hidden. What does he mean by that? Well, you gotta remember who Jesus was talking to the time that he was speaking. So uh, in Jesus' time, they did not have a million different ways to provide light once the sun goes down. You know, we can flip a light switch, we can turn on our headlights when we drive, there's street lights, and if you notice that, like during the eclipse, as soon as it got dark, all the street lights, they just like turn on. It's like we almost are prevented from ever experiencing total darkness. But in Jesus' day, there was really only one source of light. You had to know how to have fire if you wanted to have light. And if you were a traveler at night and the sun was going down, it could get so dark if it was a cloudy night that you could barely see your hand in front of your face. And if you saw a light on a hill, and then you knew that this was a place where you could get shelter, a place where you could get rest. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, light always overcomes darkness. Light always illuminates. 
Darkness cannot cover up light, but light always cuts through darkness. Light guides, light reveals, light becomes a beacon of hope. And so Jesus says, you know, for this reason, because light works this way, nobody lights a lamp in a house and then covers it up. You know, most of us, we don't light lamps in our houses, I'm guessing. Maybe some of you have some old school gas lamps. That'd be kind of weird, but maybe you do. I don't know. But most of us do not light lamps in our homes anymore. We turn on lights, right? But here's an experience that we can all understand what Jesus was talking about. I wonder how many of us have ever been camping. You know, when you go camping at night with a group of people, as soon as the sun goes down, everybody starts working on one task that is oh so important. Everybody gets around and they start to build a what? A fire. Yeah, everybody wants to build a fire. And usually it goes like this. If you're with a group of people, all the dudes get together and they argue over who knows how to build the best fire and they all fail miserably trying to light it. And then some woman comes up and lights it. <laughs> you got this roaring blaze. Like, that's just the way that it always goes. But as soon as that fire is lit, the next thing everybody does is does somebody go, okay, this fire is about this size. Is there a box that would cover that source of light that we can just cover that up? We don't have to look at it anymore. That would be so weird. Like nobody does that. Like we, we're all like, why did you even say that? It's exactly, it's so dumb. Like nobody would ever think to do that. You don't cover up the fire that you just worked to build. No, instead what happens is everybody sits around. If you've ever been camping, it's this weird experience. Everybody sits around and suddenly we're all just like, <laughs> you're just like mesmerized by this like flickering, glowing thing, I mean, right? You've all been there. Like you sit around a fire and everybody just stares at it. It draws our eyes. We don't try to cover it up, but man, we want to look at it because it is a source of light. And here's where I think some of our fears in being light in the world or being missionaries for Jesus or representatives of Christ, this is where some of those fears start to come up because here's the reality. When you are light in the world, people will notice and people will look. People will notice and people will look. And I think it's this very fact that sometimes causes us to hide because all those fears start to bubble up. Oh man, but if people look, if people notice, then they're gonna start seeing the places where I don't have my stuff together. Or if people look or if people notice, they're gonna think I'm a hypocrite. Or if people look or if people notice, they're gonna ask me questions and I don't have answers to these questions. Or if people look and if people notice, then they might start to turn their backs on me a little bit. And all these fears start to come out. And soon as we know it, we're starting to go, Jesus, I know you said that you are the light of the world, but Jesus, I don't think you understand. I am not capable of being light. Jesus, don't you know all these things about me? Don't you know that I don't know the word? Don't you know that I don't have my stuff together? Don't you know, Jesus, don't, I think you meant someone else has to be light. And this is where it gets really fun to think about the people that Jesus was actually talking to when he said these words. See, I think sometimes we imagine that when Jesus was talking, he's talking to people that have all their act together. These disciples are perfectly polished and knew how to walk with the Lord really well. But see, Jesus did not give this speech at the temple in Jerusalem with the supposedly religious elite who looked good on the outside. No, Jesus is outside of a small village in Galilee and the type of people that are coming to him. They are the laborers, the people who work with their hand, the blue collar workers, the fishermen and the tradesmen who weren't given much respect in society. They're the people who have been pushed to the edge of society because they're considered unclean, because they are sick, because they're lame or they have leprosy. They were tax collectors who were known for being traitors and backstabbers so that they could collect some extra money and pledging uh, loyalty to the empire instead of to their own people. 
They were women who had no other way to put food into their mouth except for selling their body. And so prostitutes gathered around Jesus and listened to the words that he had to say to them. And this is what Jesus says, looking at this crowd of spiritual misfits. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It's how he begins his whole sermon. If you look back at the beginning of chapter five, he starts making these ridiculous claims about these people around him. He says, hey, you're blessed. You are fortunate when you're poor in spirit because yours is the kingdom of God. He says, hey, you're blessed. You are fortunate when you mourn. You are blessed. You are fortunate when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. He's saying, listen, all of you that feel like you don't have your stuff together, you are in exactly the position that you need to be to be my representatives. You see, our awareness of our inability is actually the best starting point with Jesus. Because when we are aware of our inability, then we come to Jesus with open and empty hands. And Jesus says, man, I can work with that. I can work with that. What you need is not more of your own effort, but what you need is the presence of Jesus in your life. So when Jesus, after this, when he says, let your light shine, let your light shine is not an invitation to try harder. Let your light shine is an invitation to be you. A broken person who's fully dependent upon God and has the experienced the love of the Father and has experienced the love of the family of Jesus followers. This is what it means to walk as a representative of Jesus. Just be you. I, I, I love this. Now, I want to make sure that this is helpful. Because if I ended now, the reality is I think some of us would walk out and our first response would be to either to strive or to hide because you don't feel equipped. And so, you know, I want to describe a, a, another type of person, the, the people that don't strive and they don't hide, but they respond to this the Jesus way. They just live into the identity that Jesus has given them. Because you ever notice that some people just thrive at this. Some people thrive at being salt and light in the world. And when we watch them, we begin to learn what it means for us to thrive as salt and light. So the person I, I watch most often is my wife. My wife sometimes just so naturally thrives at this. When we, when we, moved, we moved to Canada, uh, it's been 10 years ago, we moved to Canada to be missionaries and church planters in Vancouver, British Columbia. And you know, we moved up there with this sole purpose of trying to share the gospel with people. And we both had very different experiences when we first got there. You see, my wife, she was going to school at the time. And so she went to class almost every night and she was around the same people almost every day and started immediately to build these new friendships. But for me, I was a church planner. I didn't have a regular day job. And so I had to like work really hard to start forming regular connections. And as a result, I'm a raging extrovert. I began to get a little bit lonely. And so I started to live vicariously through my wife. She'd come home at night and she'd start telling me about these people that she's met in her class. And she'd tell me about the conversations that she's having with these people that she's getting to know. And every single night, this is how it went. She'd say, yeah, I was talking to so-and-so, and they started telling me this about their life, and I'd go, oh, did you tell them about Jesus there? Like, what a great opportunity for you to slip in the gospel. Did you do that? And she's like, no, I, I didn't do that. I'm like, oh, you missed that opportunity. What do you go? You blew it. You know, I'm like, like heaping guilt on her. Every night, it'd be the same thing until eventually my striving began to come in to Amy, who was that naturally thriving at loving and being great around people. But she started to feel a little guilty because of me, and so she starts trying to slip Jesus' name into every conversation in awkward and unnatural ways. And this happened, it went on for several weeks until finally she comes home and she says, listen, what happened today? 
One of these people that she'd been connecting with, it was a woman who was actually old enough to be Amy's mom. Uh, Amy had been getting really close to her and she sat Amy down and she said, hey, Amy, listen, I really love this friendship that we're forming. She said, but you and I do not believe the same things. And if the conditions on our friendship means that you have to try to convince me that I should believe what you believe, then I'm not sure that this friendship is gonna work. And Amy was just like, just floored. I think inside she was probably secretly cursing me under her breath because I put her in that situation. But she so kindly and graciously just responded. She said, you know, you're right. She's, I'm sorry. And I'm really grateful for this friendship. And she continued to walk with that woman. And here's what changed. Amy continued to be salt and light. And instead of trying to force something on her, she always just displayed the love of Jesus to her. And instead of coming home and me giving her a guilt trip, she convinced me and pushed me that when she comes home, what we need to be doing is praying for her, not me trying to make her feel bad. So we started on a regular basis praying for this woman. And this beautiful thing started to happen because she started to see the love of Jesus in Amy's life and in our marriage and the way that we lived our life with one another. And a year later, she got to be one of the only people in the room when our oldest son was born. And as he came into this world and I held him and Amy and I together with this woman, we prayed for Elijah, my oldest son, and prayed for his life and prayed that he would know God. And then a year after that, when she was diagnosed with leukemia, our friend came to us. She asked Amy and I to pray for her as she started to go on her journey of chemotherapy and the pain that it was gonna involve. And then as she began her own spiritual search, she invited us to be in on those conversations and she let us pray with her and ask questions and I got to talk about, still get to talk about my life with Jesus openly and easily because my wife chose to thrive as salt and light instead of trying to strive to make something happen before it needed to. You see, we're called just to thrive as salt and light. And what I love, you know, I start thinking about why in the world is it so easy for AIM to thrive and why do I always tend to kind of lean towards striving? And I think the clue comes when you understand our stories. You see, I grew up in church and I grew up in a tradition that said, hey, I need to be sharing my faith regularly. And I grew up going to public schools. And so my entire school career growing up in the public schools, and I always felt like I had to be the one telling other people, like some kind of weird salesman trying to convince people that the product I had was better than the product they already had. And I never saw a single friend come to faith in Jesus when I was in high school because I was striving. You see, when you understand Amy's story, you see, my wife, when she was 15 or 16, the way she would describe herself, she was just a soul that was adrift. She'd experienced some of the ravages of this world through trauma and pain, things experienced and the people that were close to her and people that had hurt her and betrayed her. And she was just trying her best to make sense of this world. And in her attempts to make sense of the world, she tried everything. She tried drugs, she tried sexual stuff, you know, she tried everything. And none of it was really working. She said she would lie and she would cheat in school and she was a manipulator and all these things were true about her because she was just trying to make sense of life. And then one summer, somebody invited her to this Bible camp. And she goes and she spends a week around people that had something that she had never seen before. And it impacted her so much that, that after that week, she decided that every weekend she would make a 90 mile drive so that she could go and be a part of this church family. And so every Sunday she would get up early and she would drive and she would go spend time with this youth group and it started to grow that some of the families started to notice her and this family of Jesus followers noticed my wife 
And they knew that they were called to be salt and light. And so they started saying, hey, why don't you come up on Saturday night? You can stay with our family and go to church with us. And family after family began to open their doors to my wife. And slowly what started to happen was the salt of the earth, the church of Jesus, began to preserve the heart of my wife and began to prevent the growth of all the things that were causing rot in her life and started to promote the growth of all the goodness of the Spirit of God in her. And slowly she began to just unfold her life to Jesus and give her life to Jesus. You see, for Amy, the reason that she thrives is because sharing her faith has never been about being a salesman. It's always been about introducing one good friend to another really good friend that saved her life. That's what it's been about. She knows how to be salt and light because she's needed salt and light. You see, the starting place for mission is understanding that we need Jesus. We need him. Whether you are hiding or striving or thriving, the response is the same for all of us. We all need Jesus. This is why in John 15, he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you will abide in me, you will bear much fruit. But man, apart from me, you can do nothing. So I don't know where you are, what you've been doing in your walk with Jesus and this call to be salt and light. I don't know if you've been striving or if you've been hiding or if you've been thriving, but you know, the response for all of us is the same. We need to abide in Jesus together as a family. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna give you a chance just to kind of answer two simple questions with one another, with the people sitting around you, the people you came with. The first question is this, have you been striving, hiding, or thriving? Have you been striving, hiding, or thriving when it comes to the call of God on your life to be a representative of Jesus? And here's the thing, don't feel like you have to elaborate on that. Very simply, just answer the question. You can just say, I've been hiding. Or you can say, I've been striving. And if you've been thriving, man, just share that. We need you to thrive. So share that with the people in your group, the people that you're talking to, because we all understand you're not thriving because of your own efforts, right? You're thriving because Christ is living in you and you've been abiding in him. So that's the first question. Have you been striving or hiding or thriving as salt and light? The second question is this. What are the opportunities that God has been putting before you? Who are the people that he's been putting around you that might need you to be salt and light in their life? And then as a group, once you've shared who those people are, just pray for one another and pray with one another. Pray that God would just allow you to be full of his spirit, to be salt and light as you go about your week this week and that those people could come to know the love of Jesus. So we're gonna turn some music on. I want you to turn, have this conversation, answer those two questions, pray for one another. In just a minute, I'll give you some instructions on communion. So go ahead, turn, talk with the people sitting around you and share your answers.